welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about On Duties by Cicero. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Matthew Meehan, Associate Dean and Professor of Government in the Graduate School of Government at the Washington, D.C. campus of Hillsdale College. He's the author of two illustrated children's books, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals and The Handsome Little Signet. He's joined us previously on this podcast to discuss Antigone by Sophocles, and he joins us in the studio as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Matt, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Why is On Duties by Cicero a great book? It's a great book because it's been deemed such since the time of its writing might be the cheapest and simplest answer. It's been copied transcribed, disseminated, taught from the imperial age. Even Augustus Caesar, who killed Cicero, let his grandson read it, saying he was a great man who loved his country. And it was the most copied book in the scriptoriums, except for one book of sacred scripture. And it was the first book off the Gutenberg printing press after Gutenberg's Bible, because Gutenberg wanted to show that the books of our civilization, its great books— are going to be now produced on the printing press. So it was, until the 20th century, one of the most nearly adored books, copied, memorized, etc. But as a just a from authority, it has been revered as such. Why it's been revered as such, I think, is Cicero is this incredible uh, personage. He is a combination of deep philosophical knowledge, deep rhetorical excellence, so he's a great communicator, but also incredible political experience and practical wisdom. He was a great leader of the late Roman Republic and did much to try to mitigate the collapse uh, and save the Republic once against Catiline, but also dealt very assiduously to try to mitigate the problems that fell out with Caesar, Mark Antony, Pompey, and the like. So that kind of writer that combines all of those excellent skills then applying himself to write a great work uh, about duty and what your duties are and how to think practically about ordering your life according to those duties. That's a great work, and it has been revered as such. We're going to talk about all of that. What is duty? What does this book say about it? The biography of Cicero, a little bit, the legacy of all this. Whatever happened to this work, why don't we read it as much as we used to? Matt, let's start with the beginning. This book begins like a letter He writes, my dear son, Marcus. So first of all, who's Marcus and what's the form of this book? Is it like what we call today an open letter? What's Cicero doing here? It is an open letter to his son who's studying in Athens. Marque Fili, right? My my son, my son, Marcus. And in one sense, it's funny because his name is Marcus Tullius Cicero as well. Uh, And so it's almost like he's writing it as a counsel to himself, like his experienced side telling his more sort of nervous bird side what to do, right? It's sort of self-counsel to his son. But he immediately sent copies throughout the, well, what was the last last gasp of the Republic or about to become the Empire so that it would be copied again and and sent forth and distributed, which it was. So it spread like wildfire immediately. He knew it was. And his son was familiar with this, where you'd write a letter to his uncle or a brother or him and then make multiple copies and send it out. So it's kind of an open letter uh, to his son. So when I 
read my dear son Marcus, I was hoping to be full of dad jokes, which unfortunately it's not. So what is the form of it? Is it like a big essay? How would you describe it? Yeah, it's a moral treatise. The book is structured in a three-part argument. The first book is about honestum, moral rectitude, the honorable, what it is to be honorable. The second is about utility or advantage. What is to your advantage? How do you prosper and benefit yourself and your own? And then the third book is an argument, a sustained one, a natural law argument that says the morally honorable thing and the useful thing are one and the same. And anytime you think that it would be to your advantage to do something wrong or to do something right would be to your disadvantage is you misconstruing the case. That is to say, it's a training in practical wisdom for a morally upright and advantageous life. We're going to walk through those three books. I want to start, though, with the title. We're calling it On Duty. I've seen it sometimes translated as On Obligation. Maybe you can give us the Latin title, the original Latin title. But what does he mean here by duty or obligation? De officis is the Latin, which literally would be on offices or on your office. That is to say, what office do you hold? What duties do you officially have? And it turns out those can be from law, but they can also be from nature and from circumstance and from just right reason. So the whole idea of duty is that the nature of human beings and the nature of morality and the nature of law and civics and Republican government will give you a kind of roadmap as to how you ought to live and what you must do in order to be good and happy. It's a slightly different argument than you get from the Greeks, which is about natural right, what is best to do and most beautiful and leads to happiness. It's more of there is a law, it will be enforced upon you in your conscience and in your city, which will be weaker and worse off if you don't do these things. So you'll be bad, the city will be bad. So there's punishments, there's law, there's a kind of universal edict that is riding out on these choices. And so book one then is this explanation of, of moral goodness and what is honorable. What does he say here? What in fact is honorable? Yeah, the choice of the word honorable is a kind of key to that answer. In the Greeks, the honorable is sort of, yeah, people pursue honor because they don't know what virtue is. And so, like, the philosopher knows what virtue is, but the civic man just kind of guesses and hopes that he gets praise for being good. So it's a kind of symbol of an inaccurate mind that you would pursue honor. For Cicero, he actually says, no, 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 the truly philosophic soul knows that honor is an important part of the city and of justice, that you have a duty to uphold your honor. This, is, this argument is actually in the Declaration of Independence. We pledge our lives our fortunes, and our sacred honors. That's a reference to Cicero's On Duties. Little noted, but it's fundamentally a reference to that book one, that the sacred honor, you have a duty to look good, not just be good. Why? Because you live in community. And if you set a bad example for others, right, you've actually harmed them because now they see, oh, well, you're a jerk and you got away with it and you're still rich and successful. And also, if people need other people to do good, then they need to know they can trust you. And so that's a fundamental part of being good is minding your honor. The best way to look good, I suppose, is to be good. That's right. But but if you only focus on being good and you never give attention to looking good, then in a certain sense, you're likely to err because the whole of being good 
would obviously have to be concerned with other people. There has to be a social component. That's why in book one, his discussion of the four cardinal virtues is so important. So what are the four cardinal virtues? Let's fill in the content of what he means by, by honor and goodness and so forth. The normal way we talk about it would be temperance, justice, fortitude, and prudence. But Cicero, being a rhetorician, he doesn't just blurt out those terms and give you quick definitions. He wants to walk around the concept so it, you can inhabit it, so it lives in you. So he starts with practical wisdom, not prudence per se, because he wants you to know that you have to have philosophic study and you have to have lots of experience and deliberation about practical things. Then he moves to justice, but he doesn't call it justice right away. He calls it the preservation of the social and communal bonds, societas and communitas. That is to say, right, the, the, the mind and speech, what we believe together, and communitas, the body and trade and commerce and the things we need to take care of ourselves in an animal way. Those two together. Then he moves on not to fortitude per se. He does talk about it there, but he says it's magnanimity, right? And it's courage. It's sort of the great soldness that will move all the way past even death in the pursuit of goods for yourself and others. And then he moves to temperance, but he doesn't call it temperance. He says it's temperance and modesty. And then he he circles the entire conversation in a whole discussion of decorum, the apt, the appropriate, and the fitting. That is to say, the honorable, that in order for you to be truly good, you have to concern yourself with how your behavior is affecting everyone else around you, the social dynamics of virtue. Now, the precision of the words we use to describe really anything, but I'm talking about these four virtues right now, can get lost in translation, I assume. So, for example, you ticked off the four cardinal virtues, and I had them written down in, in, with some different words, which can mean different things. And so my, my first question connected to this is, is there a particular translation or edition of this book that you recommend? What is the best one for, for an English reader, an English speaker to, to read? I actually think the Pony translation in the Lobe, translated by Miller, is the best one for popular reading. It's read to be very kind of conversational and falls out quite easily. It is not precise, but I think that's also equally fitting. If you've got a little Latin, you can flip over and look at terms if you're feeling fancy. But I do think a kind of common translation that you get in Miller's sort of pony translation is useful and best to read because it's conversational. What do you mean by a pony translation? A pony translation is a translation that is uh, next to like a pony next to a, a horse pulling along next to a Latin or Greek translation. Because in this edition, you have you have the English on one page and on the facing page, you have, have the Latin. Is there any special value in reading this in the original Latin? And I'm sure the answer is yes, but exactly what would it be? I think more so than other philosophers, with the exception of maybe an Augustine or an Erasmus or a Moore. They're a special breed called, I think, rhetorical philosophers, where they, they lace language in different kinds of order in such a way that the picture, like almost like a concrete poem, right, where like the structure of the poem's words like look like a different shape of a horse or an animal, they'll actually do that with the figuration of language to teach you something more about nature, about reason, about natural law, about the apt or the fitting, about the honorable. Uh, and so you do lose a lot in translation, but I still think the English translation that is more common 
is most in the spirit of Cicero because he had what's called philosophia civilitor, the kind of civil philosophy that everybody can kind of follow. And unlike the Greeks, he does not obsess over the precise and perfect definition. And he does that on purpose because he doesn't want you to get locked into an ideological prison where this is what justice means and it only means these things and this definition. No, justice is something and there's multiple types of words that can signify this thing itself. So remain flexible, remain practical and prudence to be able to hear, see, find, and live out these virtues as they appear rather than come with definitions from philosophy and try to impose them upon your everyday life. Let's move on to book two, which is about private gain, advantage, advancement, expediency. What does he say here? He takes a whole tack, which is, I think, fundamentally at odds with Machiavelli. And Machiavelli is another one of those great authors that is in argument with Cicero without admitting it. Uh, In book two, he says, look, question for you. Is it better to be loved or feared? Now, that's a question most people who've read Machiavelli know is quite familiar. But he answers the question first. And he says, it is far better to be loved than to be feared. Machiavelli answers in the reverse. He says, it'd be great to have both, but if you have to pick one, pick fear. Cicero says, love of others is a fundamental advantage to you. Why? Two reasons. One, as a matter of honestum, it is the nature of things. People are meant to love one another. Societas is foundational. We're meant to engage in relationships, love one another, and serve one another. And he makes that argument throughout the book. But two, to your advantage is a host of people who love you, because if they love you, they will help you. And anyone who wants to achieve anything for their own private advantage or for public good needs a group of friends. So it's to your advantage to do the things that will win you the most friends. That's why Shakespeare has a kind of argument in his plays about Cicero being the philosopher of advantage. He shows you how to rise in this world. Uh, And oftentimes he's paired with the other Roman, Seneca, who shows you how to die well and fall once the wheel of fortune comes around. So the whole book is about, uh, book two, is about finding ways to maximize the amount of love in others through your service to them. Is it a kind of self-help book? How to get how to get ahead in life? You I can't tell you how many sort of Silicon Valley podcasters are basically cribbing from book two of Cicero. It definitely is like that. It reads like that. Now, sometimes when you try to rise in the world, you come into conflict with the principles of book one. And so let's move on to book three, because this is about what happens when the ideas of book one clash or seem to clash with the ideas in book two. So set us up. What is the potential clash here? What's the problem that Cicero seeks to address in book three? So he sets up book three with the fear of the most pernicious doctrine, which he actually enunciates in book two. But the fear of the most pernicious doctrine is that the morally righteous thing to do, the honorable thing, is not the advantageous thing and vice versa. And and most pernicious doctrine, that's his term. Yes, right, translated, but that's right. It's a, it's a, a, an odious doctrine. He says anyone who teaches that is bad. And the argument is to try to prove to the reader that even the most difficult cases that look like they're to your disadvantage, yet they're morally right, are in fact to your advantage. So the argument is a kind of natural law argument that says 
that your individual good, your advantage, can be bonded with and ought to be bonded in love to the common advantage of the entire city. And it sounds like a complicated theoretical argument until you think practically about it. And he gives a few easy cases and then moves on to tough cases. But think of the easy case, a soldier. He is going to give his life on the battlefield for his village, town, city, country. And you go, whoa, wait a minute. That's not to his advantage, is it? Well, but it is because he dies well and presumably hopefully goes to heaven, right? He's done well and given his his family uh, a beautiful image of service, and he is honored as much as you can be in a city for as long as people can be, right, without rising to higher levels. So he's actually advantaged himself both in the city and in heaven, right? And he advantaged the city because he sees his community as his good and the good of the community as his own. Can you boil this down and say, always do the right thing? You can, but the problem is when people start asking questions and you don't have the elaborate understanding of the advantage is virtue and virtue is advantageous, you start to stumble, right? And you, you, you come to these crux points. And one of the things that makes Cicero persuasive is he writes with examples. He tells us stories and he does this here. So, so tell us how he does that. How does he illuminate these ideas with, with storytelling? The story he gives that I think is most persuasive is that of Regulus, the consul. He appears in uh, the beginning of the book and then is promised to pay off at the end. Regulus goes to war against the Carthaginians, loses a battle, is captured, and then is given to swear an oath to go back to Rome and try to free a bunch of prisoners of Carthaginian officers, basically the future of their ability to fight the war. All the young officer corps had been captured in another battle. And if he fails to persuade the Roman Senate to release the Carthaginian officers, he is to come back under oath to be tortured to death in an Iron Maiden, which is a horrible three-day torture. He swears the oath. He goes back to the Senate and says, you are under no circumstances to release these prisoners. We hold them. We are going to have a huge advantage in the war. And then he retires, kisses his family goodbye, and heads back to Carthage and is tortured to death. And people want to say, how could you possibly think that's to his advantage? That's what I want to ask. How could you possibly do that, Regulus? <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the answer is, right, think about it. Think about it practically. He's going to die soon anyway. That man's going to die. What is he going to die doing? He's going to die giving an incredible witness to fides, which from book one, book two, and book three, Cicero says is the foundation of all justice. That is to say, you keep faith. What you say is what you do. What you do is what you say. And you keep contracts and you do not break faith with anyone. Good fides, bona fides is the word we still use to this day from Cicero's argument, right? That's how it fell into the law. But doesn't he also have an obligation to his family, perhaps, that would supersede Yes, this? and, and as, a, as a senior statesman, he's not going to do much more than be a burden on a rocking chair with a blanket. And here, he's actually going to give his life as an incredible testimony to Fides and strengthen Rome, win honor for his family, and frankly, put fear in the hearts of the Carthaginians. Carthage was panicked by this and other examples of Roman Fides, where these people would never budge from their way of life, what they think is right, and that made them fearsome. And that meant they could also call in allies. Hey, come help us today because we will come to your aid when, when you call later. And that gave lots more friends. It's to your advantage to have heroic fides amongst your leaders, right? This kind of wider understanding of advantage 
is what makes heroic prudence the 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 sort of hallmark of on duties. Let's stick with that word prudence because this is an important principle. He describes it in book one. It really comes to life, I think, in this book three, what that word really means and calls upon people to do. He hides the word often because he's afraid that if you say prudence, you're not being prudent, right? You gotta just stay practical, look at the case, don't talk about it morally. But it is, it's this incredible, beautiful account of uh, how to measure and weigh the various values. Because you brought up one, the family. Like, wait a minute, doesn't he have a duty to his family? Yes, he does, but he has a higher duty to country. Cicero calls the, the patria, the res publica, the complexa caritatis, the complex of charity, all of the interwoven relationships of love, be your barber, your sports team, your uncle, your third cousin once removed, your your alma mater, all these, your family, your kids, all of these things. And because it has more of a complex of charity, it demands more from you. And he says that the means by which you you measure how to discharge these duties of charity is gratitude fundamentally. So he gives a kind of higher prudence. It's not about calculating your own protective sort of survival uh, through the, the thickets of the world. It's about how do you actually create for yourself an incredibly noble life that can be an image of nobility and goodness and doing the right thing for everyone else so that you are remembered rightly as a good man because your city remains good over time and you die a good man, right? So you both get glory and honor so far as you can and you serve your family and all of the various sort of complexities of charity that are your republic or your patria. Statesmen, of course, face tough calls all the time where they have to exercise prudence. And there might be a situation in which they can see with clarity what the moral thing might be, the right thing to do, and so forth. But politics also, is it not the art of the possible and circumstances matter? And sometimes you've got to compromise. What would Cicero say about that? He has a beautiful letter. Um, and in fact, I it's the letter that I used to help to, uh, make the graduation diploma phrase for our degree program. And is this letter not in on duties? It's a, it's a separate No, but it capstones, letter. I think, very beautifully what it is in on duties uh, that he means to say. And if you don't mind, I just read it because I think it's just apropos of your question. For the persistence in the same view has never been regarded as a merit in men eminent for their guidance of the helm of state. But as in steering a ship, one secret of the art is to run before the storm, even if you cannot make the harbor. Yet, when you can do so by tacking about, it is folly to keep to the course you have begun, rather than by changing it to arrive all the same at the destination you desire. So while we all ought to, in the administration of the state, to keep always in view the object I have very frequently mentioned, peace combined with dignity, we are not bound always to use the same language, but to fix our eyes on the same object. Meaning, obviously, if there's a goal you want and there is a storm ahead of you that would wreck the ship of state, you don't run into the storm headlong like an Ahab chasing the white whale. You tack, you compromise, you go for what you can. You make things less bad, as another one of Cicero's great followers put it. Uh, that, that is, I think, the heart of Ciceronian statesmanship and the heart of combining moral rectitude or the honorable with the advantageous and on duties. Then is to say, you've been saying, can't you just say, do the right thing? Yes, you can. 
But the flip side is you could also say this, do what's most advantageous to the city. That is a way of finding what is morally right. And sometimes that's compromise and peace in order to fight another day. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Regulus is supposed to go off and face death. That's the right thing to do. Why can't a politician just do the right thing and go and face defeat in an election, for example, because you've failed to make a compromise that, that, that might have advantaged you politically? Yeah, the short answer is sometimes prudence does dictate going down with guns blazing, right, and making a kind of moral statement and losing. But this is where Cicero's so good on, remember that the apt, the dec decorous, like what is fitting, he would never say, just do that because it's the right thing to, to do. He would say, just do that because it will give a witness to this important thing and help build friends and allies and teach a lesson for the next generation that some things are worth dying for, some things are even worth losing for. And he would say, you should frame that defeat rhetorically and savvily in a way that advantages the long-term fight. You wouldn't just cork off pointlessly in a way that doesn't forward the argument. That would be imprudence and a time not to lose that way. One of the things that makes this book so compelling is that Cicero's not just a theorist. He's actually a man in the arena. He's living a public life. He is a statesman himself. Matt, just give us a quick potted biography of, of who was Cicero, the Roman statesman. This is BC, the fall of uh, the Roman Republic. He's uh, from the Equites class, so a new man, a kind of middle-class guy who worked his way up to the senatorial class. Uh, he eventually is named consul due to his incredible uh, rhetorical and political gifts. He uh, quells the Catalinarian conspiracy. Catiline was a, a wretched man uh, who caused a kind of conspiracy amongst disaffected soldiers, but also uh, rich young senators, class kids, to kill off the Roman Senate and seize power for himself, burn the city, and basically destroy Rome and seize it as an empire. Much the way Julius Caesar and Octavian Augustus and Mark Anthony and others did later, but in a kind of brutal way. So he defeats him and his conspiracy uh, as, a, as a matter of course, and he's hailed as a great hero for it. Eventually, uh, he is put under prescription by Mark Antony uh, during the triumvirate, and he is hated so much because he gave a series of speeches called the Philippics, named after Demosthenes against Philip of Macedon, because Macedon, the Macedonian king, was a tyrant over Athens. C 
Cicero says, I'm defending the liberties of Rome against Mark Antony. Antony hates him so much, he demands that he be prescribed and killed, even though no one else really wants to do it. And he says, I will break up the triumvirate if we can't kill Cicero. And eventually Cicero is killed on the road to escaping uh, onto a boat. Uh, They cut off his head and his hands. And Mark Antony commands that they be affixed on the rostrum, which is where the senators speak in the forum to the people. And there, his head and hands are there. And Plutarch says that the Roman people were so horrified by this, they didn't see it as a shame to Cicero, but they saw it as an image of Mark Antony's soul. The death of rhetoric, persuasion, friendship, and fides for force, empire, death, and war. So is it fair to say Cicero lived and died by his own principles? Yes, I think so. He's an imperfect man. We could go through his sort of, he has a vanity to him where he is noxious to people by talking about how he saved the Republic again and again. But, you know, look, the guy did do that. And it's hard to see a kind of Christian humility in a pagan Roman senator. But he is an incredible example of living out such principles. And this is one of the last things he wrote on duties. It's almost like a capstone project for him. Yeah, I think that the last works that he wrote, and this is the very last, is a kind of kit. I think he saw himself as kitting out the rest of the Republic, the rest of humankind, with a kind of image of what Roman Republicanism was. And so he wrote furiously, just three years of an incredible explosion of work at the very end when he knew the Republic was no more. And he wrote it in On Duties. He says, Self-government, Republican self-government is now over. It is not retrievable anytime soon. They have destroyed and broken this beautiful thing that is Rome, and that's over. But he then writes this image of how to do this, de oratore, de amicitia, friendship, on old age, all of these incredible works, but on duties is the final one to his son. And I think it's a gift to Western civilization, which, by the way, we opened and used again and again and again. And so I want to ask, why don't we read this book as much as we used to? And this is a thing we could say about a lot of classics, but my sense also is that that even in competition with, say, Homer and Plato and Aristotle, we're reading Cicero less than we once did. Is that true? And what happened? It's a long story, but short answers include German philological movements in the 19th century favored Greek and Hebrew and didn't like Latin authors and said they were too simple and not complex enough, which, you know, it's if you have a hammer, everything's a nail, so you don't want to deal with the Romans anymore. That's part of it. I think another part of it is Cicero was so embedded in our memory. People don't understand. The Founding Fathers, the papal encyclical tradition, uh, the authorial great books discussion, it was considered gauche to quote Cicero. And by, by which I mean... If you imagine today you were at a, a, a town hall meeting and you said, you know, we really need to be more like the Jedi and really remember that the force is with us. By the way, that's George Lucas's New Hope, uh, minute 25, Luke Skywalker to Yoda, blah, blah, blah. Like that would, everyone would look at you like, you gauche fool. We know what it's from. It's from S- Star Wars. That's how Cicero was quoted by the founding fathers. That's how he was quoted by everyone until the 20th century. So when you look back, if you haven't read Cicero, you don't see him, even though he is everywhere. He's ubiquitous. Kind of a victim of his own success. I think so. How did you discover Cicero as a reader and come to appreciate this work so much? Frankly, wiser teachers than I 
saw Cicero's incredible influence on the early Renaissance, and I was doing Shakespeare, Moore, Erasmus, and we realized there's no one around who really knows how to teach it except for a few emeritus professors. So we got a grant uh, at my graduate school at IPS, University of Dallas, from a foundation and brought emeritus professors who were retiring and being replaced by philosophers of AI and computational ethics, right? That's, that's what was replacing the Ciceronians. We brought Walter Nagorski from Notre Dame, DiLorenzo, and others to come and do closed-door sessions to teach us how to teach these great books because there actually is a great and ancient tradition, just like with Aristotle or Plato or others, how to teach these great books, but most people do not know it. And you are now a veteran teacher of this book. You've taught it for 20-some years to, to students of all ages, at the college level, the high school level. How do you teach it? How do you introduce it to students today? I try to get them to see that rhetorical philosophy is a special art uh, and that you really need to realize that the combination of rhetorical power and philosophical precision is a kind of reunification of the body, the heart, and the mind. And that is, I think, humanism, rightly understood, not the kind of humanism that says no to God the way we have today, but the old Roman, which then became Christian humanism, that kind of humane letters that talks to the whole person, that's what Cicero has on offer for us. And that is, I think, an incredible technological advantage for self-government. How does he fit into Christian civilization? Because, of course, he was a pagan author. And a lot of pagan authors have, have flourished within Christian civilization. But, but how does Cicero do it? How does he survive into a culture of civilization that might reject him because he's not Christian? A number of ways. One that strikes me is worth mentioning is his understanding of libertas, of liberty, that notion that you really cannot just force everyone to do anything you want. Totalitarianism, even sort of positive views of the Greek polis where the lawmaker just sets everything up and then you have to worship as they say and you do X, Y, and Z and you become a sort of cog inside the machine of the great polis. That whole notion is destroyed by Cicero, I think, with his understanding of voluntas. He's basically the discoverer of free will, by the way among other many incredible discoveries we haven't talked about yet. He also has an understanding of libertas, which is each person's conscience, and he talks a lot about conscience, has to make a decision for the good for them to come to full happiness. Now, that's in the Greeks, but it's not put into a political project, which if you have libertas as a fundamental part of your understanding of politics, of republicanism, add Christianity, which the church, religion, faith, is going to look at the state and say, hey, you don't have all of the bossy pants rights to boss us around anymore, right? We actually have our own truth. We have these higher truths that the city's not capable of fully adjudicating. That kind of libertas winds up being an incredible advantage for blending the separation of church and state, religious liberty, libertas, uh, into a kind of new Christian configuration of Republican government. One more question. Matt, you're trying to lead a, a Ciceronian revolution, a revival movement for, for Cicero, starting with this book, but, but the rest of Cicero as well. What is the case for reading this book now in the 2020s? Does it have a particular resonance for us today? I think the, the short answer is this is a masterpiece of how to live well according to nature. And we have completely abandoned nature. 
our current dialogue is throwing nature and human nature out the window. And how we see it most is in inhumane treatment of one another. And so I really think Cicero's humanitas, what it is to be a loving, sociable, communicable, free, friendly, serious, disciplined, and self-governing citizen, those kinds of visions of what it is to be excellent, I think that is what we need more than anything else. He has a line. He says, sift in your mind what your image of a good man is, because whatever that is will be what you imitate and become. Cicero gives us a much better refined view of what natural man is and thus what our natural rights are and what our natural laws are. And I think that is of the utmost importance for our time. Matthew Meehan, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about On Duties by Cicero. Thank you. You just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Great Books Podcast.